HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Today, we're getting a more policy angle um, with a wonderful wonk from the middle part of the country, Julia Olmsted, who is just about to join the ranks of the noble profession of extension um, after a long time working uh, for the, for the wonkier side of things um, in science and policy. Julia, welcome. Thank you, Severin. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. So, um, so you have done a lot of work in investigating uh, biofuels and energy policy around ag. Um, you also, it seems like, developed expertise around uh, Mississippi River navigation. Um, do you want to talk about, well, let's just start at the beginning of moving between the wonkier side and the extension side, and, and why that makes sense for you. Sure, yeah. Well, um, yeah, like you said, um, this, is, this is actually my last week here at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, which is a, a nonprofit. Uh, I guess the best way to, to, to characterize it is a think tank in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, where I've been for almost four years, and... Um, you know, in that time, I've been really focused on sort of big systems questions and, and these policy questions and, and doing a lot of research. And, um, and I, I, in all of that time, I've really felt the need to, um, to really spend some good time on the ground with farmers, which is something that I've done a little bit of, but not enough, not nearly enough. And um, I think you know, who knows where things will go moving forward, but I think all of us um, that work in this very, as you called it, this, this world of, of wonkery, um, could really, really stand to spend some time um, working one-on-one with farmers, which is exactly what I'll be doing. And, um, 
And I see my new position with Extension as, as really sort of an organizing job where I'll be um, working to create farmer-led watershed councils in, uh, in western Wisconsin and really working on the ground to, to, to help farmers to really make connections between the choices that they make on their farm and their management decisions and, and those impacts on water quality. And um, trying to create you know, just a broader ethic around environmental sustainability um, and so really start to um, just see what farmers' needs are and, and what they need to really get to, to those places where we do see improved water quality and improved resilience in the face of climate change and those kinds of things. So I'm really excited about it. So, so um, just to catch people up, thank you, that was perfect. Um, Extension was founded exactly for this purpose of bringing um, not the wonkery, but the, the big system thinking, <laughs> the, a bit the science, the agricultural innovation, um, the service, from the university to the farmers. Can you talk a little bit about how that goal of extension might inform what you're thinking and also um, catch us up on how extension has been suffering uh, in recent years? Sure, yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, like you said, I mean, uh, the, the Morrill Act um, more than 100 years ago created uh, federal funding for, for extension programs at land-grant universities um, across the country. And the idea was to really take the university out into, uh, into the, the lives of farmers, I think, initially, but it really became a real focus on community development and, and, and not just letting what happened in, in the academy become you know, something that, that happened only there, but that, that whatever research was going on was powerful in improving the lives of people and in making farms more profitable and, um, and you know, to help rural communities survive, uh, thrive. And survive, and I, I think that that has gotten, <laughs> unfortunately, very lost um, along the way. And you know, as we have seen, both you know, at the same time, a decrease in state and federal funding for extension, uh, and as we've seen, a huge increase in uh, money that's coming from agribusiness uh, into universities. The mission has really been compromised, and while we still have you know, a ton of wonderful extension agents. I think that um, a lot of the work they do is just to maintain the status quo and is really kind of indiscernible from the work that's done from people who are interested in selling fertilizer and, um, you know, genetically modified seeds. And so it's really helpful to me that there's so much energy around this project that I'm getting started on, which is a new project, um, because I see this as really true to the original mission of of extension, which is to, to help farmers to create uh, systems that are resilient, that can last for a long, long time, and that can bring improvements to the landscape, that can create farms that they can pass on to their children. Um, and, and I think that, that that's exactly what this is. And it's a big collaborative process. And, um, but I've just been so heartened by how excited people are by this. And we'll see where it goes, and we'll see where the funding goes to. But, um, but I feel like it's, a, it's an example that this still can happen and that maybe there is some hope. And, um, you know, I think it, it, I feel it adds like a big responsibility, too, that I'm taking on because I really want to see it succeed so that people see this as something that is worth investing in. I keep putting it on mute and then I start talking and no one hears. Um, <laughs> so in your work studying biofuels, you saw very well how the private investment and agribusiness investment, both in lobbying for programs as well as in 
funding research development um, at public universities, and I went to UC Berkeley where we had this big BP investment uh, to, to, to deal with as undergraduates interested in sustainable agriculture, wondering why all the research was driven by dollars uh, that were external mm-hmm. to a public mandate. Can you reflect on how, um, just like, explain a little bit how that is happening now and how you're, uh, in, if in our ideal world, if we are trying to kind of rebuild that true extension, um, what direction we would be pointing the funding and the research um, for a more durable, regional, equitable, prosperous food economy rather than this, um, well, you, you go for it. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, well, that's a that's a big question. It's a good question. I so I I spent some time at UC Berkeley too, um, where I got a master's degree in journalism, and um, and and it was right when the BP money was starting to get uh, distributed and the research was picking up, and it was a really pretty horrifying process to see what an investment of that scale can mean in terms of really turning the research um, priorities of a university and. Especially a place like UC Berkeley, where you know we like to think that it's uh, sort of a bastion of <laughs> progressive thought and independence. But um, you know, I think that um, Biofuels is a really interesting case study because um, here in Minnesota, there you know we've been producing corn ethanol for a long, long time, and it wasn't something that arose because of you know the nefarious intent of agribusiness. Here it was something that really was a response by farmers to low corn prices. And, um, you know, because of the way that we have designed our uh, agricultural systems, um, for a long, long time, I mean, this whole thing of high corn prices right now is really like a blip on what's a long, long history of really low corn prices. And uh, and that's that's been really difficult for farmers. And, and when they're not making enough to cover... Um, their costs, then, you know, they have to figure something else out. And, you know, particularly in Minnesota, that was the advent of investment in the corn ethanol industry. It was a way for farmers to try to add value to their crop to um, start to capture some of the revenue stream that um, that, that, that middlemen and that agribusiness were, were getting a hold of. And so there was actually kind of a wonderful thing that came out of that initially of, you know, farmers going in cooperatively to create these ethanol uh, businesses and really starting to change their sort of the financial picture. But as you know, I mean, things started to shift when it became something much bigger than that um, and when agribusiness really started to get their hands around it and to make it into a, a very corporatized thing that um, as production increased and increased and as these companies started to pour money into universities um, to do research around this and to really you know, push the technology um, and, and the yield potential, it, it, as we've seen now, has had a profound impact on crop prices. And, um, you know, we are dedicating a huge portion of every year's corn crop to ethanol production. And that's meant that we've seen corn prices and soybean prices go really, really high. Um, and, you know, that has fundamentally shifted the face of, of, of our agricultural landscape. And, um, and you know, that isn't to say that farmers aren't reaping some of the benefits of that. They are. They are. I mean, it's a good thing to get higher crop prices. As, as you yourself as a farmer know, it's good to get money for what you produce, and it's always good to get a little bit more because that means you have stability. But 
it also means, you know, all of these other cascading things come out of that, like land prices go way up. So people who don't have access to land, you know, either from their families or from before when it was cheaper are instantly hitting a wall if they want to get into to agriculture. Um, we see now, I think this is one of the most serious problems that we're really not prepared to deal with, but, you know, because farmers have incentives to grow so much corn, that's all they're planting, especially in the Midwest, and that's a huge problem when we have things like droughts almost every summer. Um, you know, we're just burning up those crops in the fields, and so we have these huge climate risk issues, and it's just creating, like, this incredibly uh, tenuous situation where I would say, like, I've never seen a more precarious agriculture system than the one we've come up with here in the U.S. And, you know, farmers who bring it back to extension who want to try to do something different don't always find the support that they need from extension. And, you know, that's not true everywhere. Like, I did some great, uh, spent some great time out meeting with farmers this summer to talk with them about climate resiliency. And in some places, like Washington State, they had wonderful extension agents who were really knowledgeable about organic systems, small-scale systems. That support isn't everywhere, and I would say that, like, more than ever, because of climate change, we need a ton of money going into research to figure out ways that farmers can build resiliency into their systems. We need to get more funding and better programs that can help with this land price question so people can get access to land so that we can have, like, a quilt of different scale farmers all over the country. Um, and, and, you know, that's... Unfortunately, not where things have been headed in the last few years, but I do think that we're going to get to a point where, like, we won't have any other choice. Well, so when I spoke with you last, we talked about this, the kind of phases and the eras of ethanol, and I, and I think it's important when we're talking about, you know, the spectrum of possibilities and the kind of trajectory of policy decisions and, you know, the cascade of impacts. It's like we're scattering these big arcs a lot, and I think dividing that a little bit into eras helps the mind and also helps uh, understand where a decisive action and a change of, of, of direction has a major impact potential. And I thought mm -hmm. when you were explaining um, this ethanol uh, kind of trajectory, before you, you, were, you were assigning times um, to this, you know, very farmer-driven uh, phase where people were really investing in on ethanol production facilities and kind of owning the means to their to that wealth, and then and then the next phase. And I don't think it has to go on for very long. Um, but could you do a little bit more of that, and just with um, dates, so we could get some more kids doing research on this? <laughs> <laughs> with with dates, did you say? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on what part of the country you're talking about. And and I would say that Minnesota has been a little bit exceptional. Just um, you know, we do have, and, and this is where I become, you know, sort of the braggy Minnesotan, but we do have a really wonderful history of sort of a prairie populism and, of, um, and a real ethic around, you know, cooperation of, among farmers. And, and so it might be a little exceptional there, but I don't think entirely. Like, I think that, um, you know, things got started in the 70s to really, started really growing uh, in terms of, of ethanol production and um, and that came out of the uh, oil crisis during the Carter administration and a real search and a real push on the federal level, too, for alternative energy strategies. Um, and so that slowly started to grow, but it was really slow, you know, through the 80s, through the 90s. And I would say that the real explosion started to occur um, in the early part of the last decade, so around, 
you know, 2001, 2002, you started to hear people talking about making these grandiose statements like Iowa is going to be the Saudi Arabia of North America and things like that where it was really this sort of, this was going to be the thing that saved Midwestern agriculture. Um, and then it started to be, you know, a pushing more toward the high-tech stuff, and that's when you saw things um, like what happened with BP at Berkeley, and that would be, you know, a little bit later on, like 2005, 2006, where it was like, okay, now we just need the, um, the technology, we just need the, the microbes to digest the cellulose, and we're going to have sort of the next phase of this, which is going to be cellulosic ethanol. And, you know, that's going to save the whole world because we can take anything. We can take trees, we can take grass, we can take whatever it is. We can grow these huge monocultures of switchgrass and we can, you know, fuel every car in the U.S. and we will never have to consume less. And, um, and, and so, like, every stage after it went from the sort of farmer own thing has been, like, this is going to be the savior of the world. Um, and I think that, um, I think that we right now are in sort of a, a, a sort of a status quo, like, Corn prices are so high that, um, you know, it's it, it's hard for farmers to think about growing anything else. So, you know, there are technologies that could be marketable on smaller scales to do, um, you know, to make biofuels or other kinds of bioenergy from uh, perennial crops. But who's going to grow them when you can go and get $7, $8 corn? Um, and, you know, the technology is, is not there for large-scale processing of cellulosic ethanol. Um, and, you know, I think we're just sort of at this, I don't know, just sort of a point of stasis, I think, right now, where the, the, the industry is doing pretty well, where um, farmers are doing pretty well, and um, we'll see what happens. I mean, there's still a lot of money going into technology, and I think people are still trying to push that third phase. I, I doubt that we'll ever get there. I say that, you know, we, I hope that, you know, I don't think we need to say all biofuels are bad or we shouldn't do them at all, but I think I hope that, you know, eventually we're going to get back to a little bit closer to where we were before, where biofuels become a technology that is really beneficial to farmers, where they're able to say, you know, let's come together and, and, and produce some, some fuels for our own use on the farm, for sort of regional use uh, among maybe a farmer co-op, where they're growing crops that really complement their, uh, their whole production system um, and, and see them as, a, as a, a way to find a market for some alternative crops. Um, that was beautifully articulated. Um, and I and, and, and an amazing history synopsis. I um, I feel like it gives me hope to understand that longer um, history, like the build up, the crescendo, you know, we have this incredible broken problem in our you know, in our farm bill process that we're, you know, locking in direct payments and, you know, ensuring crops that are going to drought and not looking beyond and And all that is, you know, as you say, um, stasis, uh, like terrifying. Um, but, but understanding that there's a, you know, intellectual lineage to that problem or, you know, his, uh, community history to that problem helps us as like the next phase of that, of that earlier question, which was, you know, we're pointing, we're now at a point um, where more and more people are understanding that we need to be pointing our programs um, more towards resiliency and more towards regional. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about where we are in that project and and the the forces that are kind of corralling uh, around progress 
in the direction that we're they're happy to see. I I feel like you being involved in extension is an indicator for me of that in your own life um, of that happening, and and certainly with with the work I do with Greenhorn, uh, I get to spend a lot of time with a lot of seriously hopeful people whose projects are uh, getting bigger all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're at a really interesting juncture right now. You know, and I I. It's hard to know what's going to happen, and I think I think you know I think I think about it in a few ways. On the one hand, in the last decade, I would say we have seen just an incredible shift in in people's interest in alternative food systems, in people's interest in local food, in organic food, in farmers markets, in young farmers. I mean, nobody can deny that that is like where we are today compared to a decade ago is it's a different world. Um, and it's meant market opportunities for farmers that didn't have them before. It's meant you can, you know, make a great living as an organic dairy farmer or you can really, you know, with six acres, you know, aspire to actually do that for a job. On the other hand, I think that, you know, despite all that progress, and, you know, and I give you, Severin, a lot of credit for that. I mean, I think it's been because there's been just wonderful energy and communication from young people um, that have sort of put themselves out in the world and offered an alternative vision that has inspired so many people. Uh, I also think, though, that we're still in a really nascent stage. And, you know, I think what happened last month with the Farm Bill, or I guess it was this month, um, you know, collapsing and becoming just the travesty of democracy, um, essentially, where you know, the the where Congress just did exactly what they wanted and really didn't make it a process that involved anybody's input. Um, I think that what that that says to me is that we have such a long way to go in terms of seeing really big shifts in um, in the way that our agriculture and food landscape look in the U.S. And I think. You know, particularly being in the Midwest, um, you see that a little bit more than I think maybe you do on the coast because, you know, we have a different, our population is distributed differently. Um, it's hard if you live in, you know, somewhere in Iowa or, you know, South Dakota or something, you're not near a big city and you want to do something different. Like, it's really hard because you don't, you can't get to a big city to sell your vegetables and there maybe isn't an aggregator there to pick up your stuff and it's like you kind of have to just do the big thing because there's no other way to do it and it's um, it's it's really I think what we're going to have to do is find a way and I still I think all the time about how we're going to do this and I think we need to start having conversations as a movement about this is like how do we take the energy that's developed around food and the interest that comes from you know urban populations in particular and really start to focus that in on questions of um, bigger structural changes, because um, I think that's what's going to take to really start to see a profound shift and to see uh, the creation of a, of a agriculture system that truly is resilient um, and that can be a viable option for young people um, and for people who, you know, are not traditional farmers, people of color, um, low-income people who don't have access to not just land but to, you know, sort of the whole new food culture. Um, and I, I think that you know, it's it's going to take a focus not just on agriculture, but, you know, <laughs> not to go too far off track, but I think, you know, we need to start thinking about um, 
social justice questions and economic justice questions to really see this change in a big way. And um, but I, you know, I think that I think that we're getting there, and I think that that the movement is is um, is really grappling with this stuff in a painful way right now, and um, and I think that means progress. So I'm really hopeful. Um, and you're really smart. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I, I wanted to just re- like reflect back about that this democracy issue because, um, well, two things. One, the fact that we had an electoral politics um, that was really driven by urban livers, uh, people living in urban areas, and as somebody who works with you know media and communications, I um, and I'm constantly you know working on stories uh, to be in mass media to see how urban-driven, um, that media narrative is around farming, um, how urban-driven that money um, narrative is starting to be around farmland investing and, and in the beginning farmer incubator conservancy conversations and how really from a, from a young farmer's perspective, um, there's a tremendous opportunity in rural, uh, rural places. Uh, and, and a lot of us aspire to be growing, you know, significant quantities of food and and um, it's harder to do that than it is to sell right into a city. So like that point, but but so that's this rural that's this urban question and the rural question and, and opportunity and but also in terms of being involved in the democratic process and having a farm bill that you know just like didn't even budge and went backwards like three times um, and feeling right. Like, we went to kind of a lot of trouble to learn how to speak policy language and, you know, form a National Young Farmers Coalition and, you know, issue statements and write reports and show up for all these things and then feel totally, basically totally ignored. Um, was It's a hard lesson. Uh, once you get so self-empowered as to want to farm, you know, then you expect self-empowerment to continue going very well for yourself. Um, <laughs> and I, you know... I just think that one of the next phases in this painful time is going to be figuring out how we can have time to do farming and and have time to to be involved in in statesmanship and citizenship on a really active level and see if um, see if we can't you know work on this this issue of of uh, reclaiming some more democratic processes and I. The only way I see that happening is through people um, getting involved who are have high integrity, um, which of course we have to build up our courage to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I agree, and I think um, I think leadership development is a really important thing too. You know, and I I think that um, I know that's something that, that that the Greenhorns focus on, and I think that that's something that we need to think a lot about where we're actively um, recruiting and developing young farmers, not just farm, but also to be out there telling their stories and speaking their truths and really talking about the reality of the experience, um, and not just, you know, not, and not just as farmers, but as people who want to be change makers and, um, you know, finding a way to really feed that into to exactly what you said, into the democratic process and, and, and you know, I think making connections to... Um, with with other parts of the movement um, and with with the movements towards social and economic justice is important, um, and you know I, I think also we I don't know uh, one of the things I think and this is sort of 
uh, early thinking for me, so I'm surprised that I'm bringing it up on this interview, but um, I think, too, just looking at, at, at successes that have been had in both immigration reform work in the last few years and in health reform, uh, insurance reform, while those have been far from perfect, like they have achieved some measurable results. And I think sometimes, you know, maybe we'll have to look to those movements to think about, like, not just the politics of the possible, but sort of, like, how do we be strategic? Like, how do we pick issues that we can all come together on and really push to get those passed um, and to make them priorities in the country and things that, that people can feel passionate about and people can work toward? And I think... You know, one of the things we struggle with as a movement is, like, we want to be everything, and we want to make everything better, and we want to do it all at once. And, um, you know, maybe we're going to have to think about some sort of um, first steps, and maybe it's going to be something about land reform or access for, for young farmers or, or something like that. I don't know exactly what those things will be, but, um, but, you know, I do think, like, those are the kinds of conversations and strategic thinking that we really need to find a way to start having. Agree, strategic thinking, and and you know, and frankly, when I look, we've just been working on a delegation for the National Farmers Union in Germany, and so I've been connecting with young farmers groups in Europe, and Wales, in Germany, and Austria, and looking at the way that they frame their work and how. And my God, the French young farmers, you know, they spend six million euros turning the Champs Elysees into a farm. Now, I don't know that I would take that on, even if I do like crazy events. But, you know, they really are managing to have agriculture in the public eye and in the public heart in a way that um, we're just not there yet. Yeah. So um, I like this challenge that you present. I really like the idea. I like the, um, the strategic thinking uh, around democracy and, and what are the next big goals. And, um, man, you got me all riled. Okay. <laughs> Julia, I, I can't wait to find you an extension. Um, would you mind just pointing us to um, a, some of the beginner resources? Um, if, if there was someone listening here today who felt like, gosh, I should really brush up on some PDFs uh, about biofuel uh, policy, would you mind just ah, giving us a well, few little resource tips? <laughs> sure. Um, let me think. Um, well, you can always come to uh, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policies website, which is www.iatp.org, and, uh, and, and look at some of our writing around those issues. Um, and I, let's see, I guess I would also recommend um, some work by the Union of Concerned Scientists. If you go to their website, they've done a lot of really good thinking around this stuff. Um, and uh, I think the Pesticide Action Network, too, is uh, always doing some good thinking on, on these questions and not, not just around pesticides. Um, so I, I always recommend that's PANA, P-A-N-N-A dot org, their website for good stuff. Um, but those are just a few places to start, and uh, you know, there's, there's a ton out there. And um, yeah, I mean, and, and of course, I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk with people, and I'd love to, you know, correspond with, with folks who are thinking about these things, especially young people who are interested in, in worlds of policy advocacy and, um, and, and, and now extension, I suppose. So um, I don't know if you put my email address up on the site, but I'm happy to, you know, people should feel free to reach out. Well, it's very, very kind of you, and I think people probably will. I hope they will. Um, I look forward to bumping into you again in the long life ahead. Um, the big works ahead, and um, rah-rah extension. 
for getting well, someone like you. Thanks, Severin. Thank you so much for having me and for all the great work that you do. I, you know, I always am just so happy to, to see you out in the world, and yeah, I hope we meet up soon. Hopefully. Thank you, thank you, and goodbye to you all. One more announcement before I forget. February. Very exciting. The 50th anniversary tour of Bread and Puppet Theater. Bread and Puppet Theater out of Vermont. They are doing political theater. Their newest show is called The Circus of Possibilitarians. And their premiere of this 50th year tour will be at the Wayland Grange Hall in Waylandsburg, New York. Um, for those of you who didn't know, I'm very involved in this Grange, and we have a bunch of wonderful programs there. So on the 15th, that's the Friday before NOFA, Vermont, come on over a day early to the New York side of Lake Champlain and join for the Circus of Possibilitarians. There are homestays available. And then uh, Farm Hack at uh, NOFA, Vermont, a presentation by Severin and Dorn, um, some awesome meetings with the NCAT folks. And, um, yeah, NOFA, Vermont, show up. Uh, lots of things in January, obviously, a mixer with, with Greenhorns and California Farm Link and Wolf at Eco Farm and folks at Moses, folks at NOFA New York, uh, folks at SOG. Please just make sure that you're showing up at all these places if you can, and there's still funding for scholarships. Um, you know, we'll see if we keep the BFRDP money flowing, that those scholarships will stay and keep it possible for us to show up. But certainly there should be every scholarship should be taken so that we have this, this good sense to develop our professional networks um, our professional capacities, our communication skills, our knowledge and literacy, such that we can do as Julia has urged us and develop ourselves into good leaders. Okay, that was enough scolding. I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Greenhorns. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.